Hey folks, this is Bob Frazier. Thanks for joining me as we take a walk through Oklahoma history. Today I'm pleased to welcome my good friend Bob Pomeroy to Cutting the Cards. Bob's name is familiar to most everyone in Bartlesville as his service and volunteerism has helped make our community what it is today. Bob Pomeroy, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Bobby. Happy to be here. I know you're a Bartlesville native. What are some of your memories of growing up here in Bartlesville? Bobby, I grew up out in the 1500 block of Oak, and that was the last street on the west side until they built the Belmede edition. And the Belmede edition was quite a deal. All new houses, new streets, put in a new grade school. But what a great time and uh, area to grow up in. I, I don't ever remember my parents locking our house. My brother and I would get out of school and we would play until it was about dark and I'd hear my mother hollering and we'd go in and have dinner. My mother worked, uh, both my parents worked. So in the summertime, Dave and I'd get up, we'd find something to eat for breakfast and we'd go out and we'd just play and play and play all day, ride our bikes anywhere and everywhere. And it was just safe and fun and a great deal. And it was a, what a great neighborhood, and everybody, everybody was from out there. Young Phillips families, that's, that's where they lived. That's where they lived. Uh, that's right. Bill Dows lived right across the alley from us. Of course, he wasn't. So all the big hitters lived all, right there. All of us were right there. Pomeroy's and the Dowses. Okay. So we lived at 1569 South Elm, so we weren't that far yeah. from, from where you were. And we, I'd get out and walk to Bellmead Grocery. Oh, I love uh, Bellmead Grocery. And uh, yeah, yeah, those were good times. I went to McKinley in the first grade, rode my bike up down 16th Street, up over the railroad tracks and up to McKinley. And then Jane Phillips opened. Uh, first year it was open was when I was in the second grade. Okay. And so then I went to Jane Phillips there. Huh. But it was a great time to be in Bartlesville. Great area to grow up in. Happy childhood. And you know, I say it to people all the time. We didn't know it at the time because that was our normal. Uh, but it literally was was Ozzie and Harriet, leave it to Beaver. I mean, that's the world we lived in. That was it. That I mean, was it. Yeah. Good, good place. Yeah, good it really was. Okay, let's talk about your career. Uh, I know you had a really good career with Phillips. Can you tell us a little bit about where that career took you and what all it involved, what you did for the company. Yeah, sure, Bobby. It was, uh, I had a great career with Phillips, you know, um, and, and, as you know, and, and most people know, because I've never tried to hide it, I, I never graduated from college. Didn't get close to graduating <laughs> from college. So I went to work for Phillips. Uh, it was always easy to remember because it was June 3rd of 63, 6363. And that's when I went to work for Phillips. And uh, not a rags to riches story by any means, but maybe a, a rags to mediocre story because I started in the mail room. Okay. And I was delivering the mail. And uh, so then they transferred me out to the research center and I was delivering mail at the research center and got to know a few people out there at the research center and the plastics uh, technical, what's the plastics technical center now? So I got a job at the plastics technical center just as a grunt. Uh, making bottles, uh, making hula hoops, yeah. all that kind of stuff, you know. Marlex was brand new, and people were just trying to use as much imagination as they could as to what do we do next. And uh, so I did that for a while, and, and then I decided that that's really not where I want to spend a career out there. And so in 1967, I was 25 years old, and I realized that I needed to do something different with my life rather than live in Bartlesville and work out there. So of all things, I read about a broadcasting school and I thought that'd be cool. And it was in Houston. And so I enrolled and was accepted. I, I doubt they turned anybody down, but I felt <laughs> good about being accepted. And so I moved to Houston and I, I moved myself, but I was able to get a job at some of our, at one of our company owned service stations. Now, this was 1967. There wasn't any self-serve or anything. Right. You vacuum the car, you clean the windows, you check the oil, you check the tires, you mounted tires, you, you changed oil, you lubed cars mm -hmm. and all of that. So it was full service stations. And so I was going to do that until this school started. Well, I liked that type work, it turns out. I'd never done it, but I liked it. 
So I delayed going to the broadcast school for six months just so I could keep doing what I was doing. In the meantime, I was promoted to managing one of the stations. And at that time, there was, it was unheard of to send a, a non-college graduate to marketing school at Phillips. Just, you just didn't do it. But the division manager down there got to know me a little bit, and he came to me and he says, we're going to recommend that you go to the marketing school. Don't let us down. No pressure. Yeah, really? So I came up to Barlesville, went through the 10-week marketing school, went back to Houston and was a flunky in, in the marketing department for six, eight months. And then they, I got a territory. And of all things, the territory was Bartlesville, Oklahoma. So I came back home and I was the marketing rep here in Bartlesville. Some things, Bobby, that were kind of of interest during that time. That was when we took, we had two company-owned stations when I came. The one out at the Limestone Corner and the one at 4th and Cherokee. All the others were dealer-operated. And so while I was here, they made the decision to change them all over to company-owned stores, all except Tom Sass's. Okay. Tom Sass had an in, mm -hmm. and so he kept his station down there by the uh, chamber office mm -hmm. now. And so we changed all of those over. It was quite an undertaking, a lot of hard feelings, I'll have to say. Dealers that knew people and all felt like they was being run out. But we handled it the best we could, and we got all that changed over. About that time also was is, is uh, we had the gasoline shortage. Okay. And so all at once, we've only got so much gasoline to sell. Different different dealers and marketers did it different ways. Some of them would open up the first of the month, and when they'd sold their month allotment, even if it was the 11th of the month, they shut down until the next month. That wasn't a good way to do it. So we worked on a, an, an allocation deal of how much gasoline do we have each day for each station. And so we would open every morning, and uh, people couldn't bring in outside containers, only what would go in their car. And when we met that daily allocation, then we'd built big yellow tent deals, just put them over the pump. You could see from the street, that station was out of business. It was so interesting. John Jennings was the editor of the Examiner Enterprise then, and the Examiner Enterprise had trucks running newspapers all around and all. He felt like he should be special. And so they would call and ask for an audience. Ray Steiner was the region manager. Uh, he was over the whole central region of the United States. Ray threw me under the bus and he said, well, go talk to him at your territory. <laughs> so we did, and we did that. The other, and, and, and got through it. Mr. Jennings said he understood, didn't like it, but understood. And then Bill Dunn just called, and Bill was really upset. And Bill was huge political power back then in yes. the state. Uh, Ray went with me on that, but as we pulled up to Mr. Dungess's offices, he was already out on the highway by then. He said, okay, this is your deal. You know, you, you handle this. And, and so we did. So it was really an interesting time, and we were trying some new things. Self-serve was coming into Bartlesville. Yeah, and what so a great learning gone. experience. Oh, wow. God. Yeah, a, lot of, a lot of exposure, Bobby, and as you know, you know, exposure can be good or bad, and right. if it's good, it's really good. Yeah. And so we tried a deal that we had a station across the street from the old Safeway store down on Frank Phillips, there by the Firestone Caddy Corner. We had a dealer in there and, and, and we had replaced him and we wanted to do something different. It wasn't a high volume station. So we decided we'd put in a self-serve station, self-serve only, no service, and only women would work there. Unheard of at the time. So we did that. And Gosh, lo and behold, it was halfway successful and had, had fun with that and all of that. Then we made that into a tire store, a true tire store. We did alignments and balanced jobs, sold tires. It was truly a tire store. And so I was working for Charlie Bowerman at the time. He was district manager. And Charlie and I went to Kansas City, Oklahoma City, Tulsa, Dallas to interview people with tire store experience. And we finally agreed, we'd found the right guy and brought him in. And, and that venture was quite successful. It was, a, it was a good deal for Phillips. It was the only tire store as such that we had anywhere. Interesting. Just as we got that thing up and running though, uh, things were changing in marketing and I had an opportunity to go back into plastics. And so I interviewed for a job. I went to Houston and interviewed for a job and it was out in San Jose, California. And as a, they called him a sales engineer, but it was basically just 
selling plastics. Big customers would be a dairy that that blow molded their their milk bottles. You know, mm-hmm. the bottle was never touched by human hands. The machine would blow it and go down a conveyor around the corner into another room, be filled with milk, put on a cap, slap a labor on it, and then go out to the truck and go to the store. Those those were big accounts because they used a lot of plastics. Wire and cable was were big accounts selling lots of plastics. So I go out there and. Uh, I had seven northwestern states and half of Canada as my territory. So I got a, I got a lot of frequent flyer miles. God, I bet. I had to travel a long way between customers. That territory just really wasn't developed at that time. And so I was going from uh, uh, Seattle to, to uh, Spokane, uh, back down to Portland, to Sacramento, to Denver finding dairies, finding wire and cable, finding people that were blow molding, injection molding items, and trying to sell them. The advantage we had, Phillips was the biggest in the market in polyethylene. That's your blow molded bottles and Mm -hmm. all of that. So I had a good leg going in. People knew who we were and and what we did. I had a little bit of of, uh, the jargon down from working out at the sales service lab so I could fool people that I actually knew what I was doing. So we had some success out there. Things that happened while I was out there, I was out there four years, Bobby, and a couple of the interesting things that happened, Mount St. Helens erupted while I was living out there. Wow. What a disaster. I mean, it was just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And I had a wire and cable customer up in uh, uh, Longmont, Washington, which was really close to St. Helens. And the purchasing agent that I dealt with lived up there on that river. Tule River or something like that. His home was on that river. So I've been going out there. It's interesting. All the airlines for about a month after that happened, if you were flying up to Seattle or that area, they would all bank and fly around St. Helens one way and then bank and fly around the other way so everybody in the airplane could look down. They did that for a month afterwards. Wow. The devastation was yeah. unbelievable. Trees just laid down. I had a customer over in Spokane and it's a long way from, from the uh, west coast of Washington over to the east coast of Spokane. Everything in Spokane had like a foot of ash. Cars, houses, yards, just everything covered. was just covered in ash. And people were so worried about what it was going to do to agriculture. Well, lo and behold, there's all kinds of vitamins and minerals and all that and that ash. Everything just blossomed and grew back bigger and better than it had ever been. Hmm. But that was an interesting deal. I went up to the, the person agent's house. It was about six weeks after the eruption, and he had not been back up there. He was sitting at his house. He had sent his family off to live with relatives because he just didn't know what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. But it was several days after the eruption. He was sitting out on his deck. He had a deck that overlooked the river with his dog. He said all at once his dog just got up and his ears was just perked up and, and started in just kind of, not really barking, just kind of yelping and whining. And about that time, a, a sheriff's car down on a bridge just down the way was down looking under the bridge and he had his PA system on and they contacted him and my, and my friend heard the announcement over his radio saying, evacuate everybody, sludge is coming. So my friend grabbed his dog and his guns and whatever else he could grab, got in his truck and left. He said he heard the trees snapping as he was driving out. Good grief. He and I go up there, Bobby, six weeks later. He had not been back. He had a two-story house. We literally had to get, his front door was caved in. We had to get down on our hands and knees because it was just, it was, it wasn't mud by then. It was just hard, hard packed dirt. Yeah. Ash is what it was. Uh-huh. We got down on our hands and knees to crawl in through his front door. Once we got in, we could stand up because there was a stairwell there. And we went upstairs. The house was just, it was just destroyed. It, 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 it had to have like seven foot of, of mud in it. There were huge tree limbs that had come through the door. So anyway, that was two really interesting things that happened while I was out in San Jose. So then uh, I was in a plane crash. I had the eruption, then I was in a plane crash in, in uh, February. So overall, things were working out pretty well. Oh, listen, living the dream. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> earthquakes. A plane crash. I, I experienced my first three earthquakes while I was there. 
uh, yeah, eruptions, and then a plane crash, February of 81, I'm flying into LA. I never flew into LA, it wasn't part of my territory, so I never went down there. But our district was having a meeting down there. So I was flying into uh, Orange County, which is now John Wayne Airport, right. Orange County Airport. And so I never took window seats. I flew so much. I, there wasn't anything out there I needed to see. I wanted the room of the an aisle seat. But since I was going into LA and never did that, I decided I'm gonna get a window seat. So I'm flying Air California, uh, pretty big regional airline out okay. there. I think maybe it was a 737. I've kind of forgot all this stuff now. But, but we're going in, plane's packed. Uh, I've got a window seat up on row five. And I'm looking out, I see Anaheim Stadium, I see the big A for the Angels, Anaheim, mm -hmm. oh yeah, okay, that's cool. See the ocean, oh, that's cool. And there was a young girl sitting next to me and a man on the aisle then. And, and this girl, I say young, she was probably a teenager. I don't think she was 20. And so we're just minding our own business looking. We start to land and I won't go into a lot of details, not important, you just knew something wasn't right. The sound wasn't right and all of this. And I think, we're, we got to be getting ready to touch down. And I look out, and we're still 50 feet off the ground. We're nowhere near touching down. All at once, he gives it full power, just throws you back into your seat. And he no sooner does that, and he just cuts the engines. You, you can't hear anything. We're gliding. Well, those things aren't built to glide, so the tail drops. Tail hits the runway, which just slams the plane down onto the runway. The engine on the left wing, which was right behind where I was sitting, it comes off. And we bounce up, and when we bounce up, this engine slides and comes under us, and we come down on that engine, and it just breaks the plane in half right behind the wings. Stayed together on the bottom, but there's like a six-foot gap up above, above you. broken half. The fuel is still pressurized. The sparks set it. We are a flamethrower. I look out the window. All I see is fire. So, I mean, you know you're dead, okay? <laughs> God! It's not a bad deal when you know, you're, when you know yeah. you're gonna die right there. And so I said a couple prayers for my boys and uh, I asked the Lord, don't let me burn. I, you know, I know you're taking me, but mm -hmm. don't let me sit here and burn. Mm -hmm. Bottom line, we all get out. Nobody dies, people with broken backs, a lot of leg injuries where those seats broke apart and were sliding around people trying to get out, people hollering, we're on fire, we're on fire back here. We weren't, the plane inside was not on fire. What had happened, we slid off the runway and going through the grass and dirt, dirt was billowing up and coming through that big hole and it was dust and dirt and they thought it was smoke. Just Did you ever find out if it was pilot error? Pilot error. Was it? He had been told to slow down, the runway wasn't completely clear. Way back on his approach, said, come on in, but just slow it down a little bit. We'll have everything clear. And he didn't. So when he got down, they said, runway and clear, take off. And But he had gone too far. Okay. When he gave it all that power, there was no way he was going to clear the end of the runway and all of that. So he didn't have any choice. The good news was we slid off, literally slid to the fire station at the airport. I got out and ran about 100 yards and sat down on the ground to turn around and look and there was foam hitting the plane from behind me as a fire truck. I just got set down and a, a medic, whatever, came up and said, are you all right? I said, I'm fine. And he took off running. Wow. Great stories came out of that because it was a happy ending, okay? But uh, uh, enough of that. Those were the two big things that happened to me when I was out But there. it explains why you there. drive most places exactly. anymore. Yeah. Okay, yeah. now I got a better picture. Getting on, a, getting on an airplane going home to San Jose three days after that, one of the hardest things I ever did. But I really liked my job, and I knew I had to fly if yeah. I was going to keep working. And I, I just thought, I got to get on. You know, you just mm -hmm. you just make that decision. You got to do it. Jeez. And I was fine until the pilots or the stewardess or whoever says, we're coming in on final approach to San Jose. Yeah. And so that lasted about a year and a half. But I'd just save a good story in the newspaper or keep a book that I was really interested in. And as we would start to descend, I'd get involved in that book. And it flying doesn't bother me that much anymore. Really doesn't. Interesting. Other than the turmoil at the airports. That's yeah, what I don't yeah. like about flying. So then we go from San Jose. 
I'd done reasonably well on my job, and so they wanted to get me in a bigger territory. So they sent me to Kansas City. We moved to Kansas City in 81, and we were there four years. I had uh, Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, part of Iowa. At one time I had Colorado, and then we made some trades, and I lost Colorado, and I picked up the northern half of Oklahoma. So a little bit of flying, but mostly driving mm -hmm. and, and not as much travel. I had good customers in Kansas City that I could spend time with and call on. Became big Royals fans and big Chiefs fans. Kansas City Kings were there. Mm -hmm. they, they moved to Sacramento while we were there. It was great going to Kansas City Kings game. You could buy the cheapest seat in the upper reaches and go down and sit on the sixth row of the court. <laughs> they just weren't very good. So that was a good experience. The boys got older, got involved in sports, loved the Royals. George Brett was there, so that was fun. Uh, Chiefs weren't very good, but we would go to a few games. And then I had the opportunity in 85 uh, to get back into marketing. And while I plastics was okay, I really wanted to get back into marketing. So we moved back to Oklahoma in 85. Uh, I worked in a couple jobs. And then uh, after about a year, I moved into retail marketing. Retail marketing is basically the arm of Phillips that ran the company-owned stations versus wholesale marketing, which ran the dealer, marketer, jobber stations. Okay. So out of all the stations in the United States, retail had, it varied, but around 330 to 350 stores. And it would vary a little bit from month to month. And so in that job, I was in charge of purchasing all of the uh, grocery, snack, drink items that we had in our stores. So I got to know a lot of the corporate people uh, at Frito-Lay, at Pepsi, at Coke, all of that. It was an interesting job. I, I enjoyed it. But at that time, Bobby, we didn't have the big stores like we have now. Okay. We had those little bitty kiosk deals, you know pumps on each side, this little bitty store in between, mm -hmm. and then a car wash out there. So we had to be really selective as to what we had. Uh, we didn't have any, we didn't have hot dog machines or anything. We didn't have room for that. We would have a fountain machine. Uh, and of course we sold beer and tobacco. That, that's where your money was, was beer and tobacco and, and had coolers and all of that. So I enjoyed that. Got to go to a lot of conventions was, um, had some success, was interviewed for some of the national magazines for convenience stores to what our policy was uh, on, on what we sold and how we displayed it and all of that. So that was good. And then in about 1992, uh, I had a chance to go over to advertising and business promotion. Phillips at that time was doing a lot of downsizing. But, but I, was, I was fortunate in that I actually got a promotion and went over to advertising business promotion. I'd been there about a year when we got a NASCAR team in the Bush Series. We already had the Big Eight basketball. We had sponsorships at OU, at OSU, uh, ORU. Uh, we had sponsorships around, mm -hmm. but, but Big Eight was our big deal. But when we got that NASCAR team, they decided they could designate a job, and, and so... Uh, I was director of sponsorships, so my job was to oversee the brand and look for sponsorships, be sure we were getting what we were paying for where we had sponsorships. Very, very interesting job. Got to meet a lot of people. Were you, were, was the company still involved with the swimming at that time? That was corporate, Bobby. I never had anything to do with swimming. Even today, the swimming program is a corporate sponsorship. Really? Okay. Yeah, people... You know, it's kind of hard to understand. Marketing never sponsored Splash Club, AAU Swimming, and all of that. All of that was on the corporate side. Okay. Which served me really well because I'd get people coming and wanting us to do things. A quick story. A bunch of guys from KU called me one time. And they, they were professors, coaches, and parents. And there was about eight of them. They called and said, we want to come down and talk to you. I said, great. What do you want to talk about? Well, we want to talk to you about um, swimming programs in the Big Eight. I said, well, okay, but I knew where they were going. And I said, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to help you. Well, we'd just like to come down and talk to you. And so I said, okay. So they come down and I get a conference room and we're in there. Well, they were wanting Phillips' help. 
mainly because of the AAU sponsorship, was the longest running sponsorship in America by an oil company, that AAU swimming deal. Wow. They said, we need your help because schools are starting to do away with their men's swimming programs and we need Phillips' help. I said, okay, I understand what you're saying, but you have to understand, there isn't anything we can do. You know what the problem is, it's Title IX. Title IX is dictating that schools are having to give up men's sports to keep everything level mm -hmm. so they have women athletes. Right. I said, I'm not anti-Title IX, but that's the problem you've got and it might be insurmountable. And they were really good about it. They left and, and all of that. And, and they couldn't do yeah. anything about it. Since yeah. then, more schools are dropping some men's programs so they fit into Title IX. Yeah, men's golf, men's cross country. That's it. Yeah, that's just it. to make sure you yep. get the, just, the balance. That's it. Yeah. That's it. So we were doing those kind of things. NASCAR was fun. I had been a NASCAR fan. Uh, just, I enjoyed the races. And I would go to about. Uh, old 15, 16, sometimes 17 races a year. And everybody thought, golly, boy, that's a great job. It was, I, I'm, not, I'm not lying, it was a good job. But I never sat down and watched a race. At the Big 8 basketball and later Big 12, I never sat down and watched a game. I had things I was doing, I was checking on what we were supposed to be getting. At races, we'd have up to 300 fans at a race, and I was making sure I had help, but I was making sure they had what they needed. They had the radios. They knew where their seats were. We had hospitality events before the race where we'd take the driver out. And uh, so I worked, uh, I, I probably worked uh, 24 to 25 weekends a year. And I was back in the office on Monday. You know, I, I didn't work Saturday, Sunday, yeah. and then take off Monday, Tuesday. It was enjoyable, but it was it work. It was great. It was work. Yeah. It was work. My, my, my boys were fairly young when we first started. Did everything I could to make up that time with them. And, and I think I did. But, but uh, gosh, I got to meet a lot of people. You know, I've, I've spent the night at Dick Vitale's house. Dick Vitale did a commercial for us for Big 12 basketball one year, and I went down for the shooting and stayed at his house, played golf with him, was invited to his 25th wedding anniversary. Huh. And Bobby, I go, I mean, who's, who's not gonna go? Sure. Invited. So I go, and it's at a country club down there by Tampa. And uh, big place. Every basketball coach in America is in this place. I'm just in awe walking around. <laughs> So I walk around this one corner and there's Eddie Sutton. And Eddie Sutton looks at me and says, Pomeroy, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> oh, wow. But, but I got to know a lot of people, played, played, played golf with, with a lot of people. Roy Williams and I played golf numerous times, played golf with football coaches. It, it was really good. Met, became friends with Steve Owens. Uh, you know, we're, mm -hmm. we're still friends today. Joe Castiglione, was athletic director at Missouri when, when I first went into that job and it okay. was the big eight. And, and one year I had met him and uh, one year we're there and we're at the Hyatt Hotel and I'm standing up on a balcony looking down on the lobby, just killing time, wasn't doing anything. And somebody behind me says, hey Bob, how you doing? I turned around, it was Joe Castiglione, he was at Missouri. And I said, well, well good, Mr. Castiglione. He says, oh, Joe. So we visited a while and he said, hey, I went and found the Phillips Marketer in Columbia. And he said, I walked in and told him who I was and I thanked him for his sponsorship. And so he got me a credit card. I said, <laughs> well, good for you. And so then later he goes to OU uh, as athletic director. And so I was looking for a speaker for a Samaritan Sports Spectacular one year. And I thought of Joe. So I sent him a note. And I just said, hey, I'm involved with this nonprofit. They do great work. Da, 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 da. They have this event surrounded by sports. Is there any way you could come up and, and speak at it? And I don't hear back from him. And I don't hear back from him. And so I was down in Austin for a golf weekend. And uh, I got a phone call. And it was from Joe. He said, Bob, golly, this just now got to my desk. I don't know what happened. I said, that's all right, Joe, don't worry about it. I said, I just hoping it'd work out. Well, of course it'll work out. Oh, gosh. Where do you want me? When, <laughs> when do I need to be there? Wow. So he came up, I got to introduce him, his wife came up. So I told the story about the credit card. 
And Kristen, his wife, stood up with the credit card. <laughs> says, we've still got it. It's the only one we use. I mean, what a great story. What Isn't a that home cool? run. Isn't that cool? Yes. So, I, so it put me in a position to get to know a lot of people. I, I, I got to know Richard Petty well enough that when he would see me at a track, he would, he would holler over at me by yeah. name. So it was just things like that. Neat that stuff. Really, really special. But it was... Uh, it, it wasn't the easiest job in the world because people expected a lot. Customers really wanted a, a lot. Things you, things you just can't yeah. get done. You know, you want to, but you just can't can't get them done. But it was a rewarding job. And, and I did that up until I retired. And then after I retired, Jim Mulva came to me and he asked me if I would come back under contract and do it some more. And that wasn't a hard decision. Right? So <laughs> I said, yeah. And I retired, Bobby. I was, uh, I, I planned to work until I was 62 is what I wanted to do. And, but at 60, ConocoPhillips had merged. Things were moving to Houston. And I was going to have to go to Houston. And, and I wasn't going to do that. I knew I wanted to retire in Bartlesville. This is my home. Okay. And I didn't see any sense in going to Houston and working two years and then having to pay to move back up here. And so I said, uh, I told him, I said, no, nah, I'm going to take the package. The very next day, they contacted me, and they just said, you know, you're one lucky dude. Phillips had just announced a two-year severance package for those that want to take it. So basically, I got to retire, I got two years severance pay, and I got to work another year under contract. I'll never loan you another dollar. <laughs> I had no idea. I spent it all. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I got to ask you, so when... When do you intend to start your your uh, radio school? <laughs> I mean, because you, you got the, accepted. In the meantime, Bobby, my voice went to hell. Oh, <laughs> minor details. I told people, I told people at a speech one day that I was telling that story. I said, you know, can you imagine if I'd have gone to that broadcast school and then my voice goes to hell? I said, I'd be here in Barsville working for Kevin Potter <laughs> and he'd have to fire me because of my voice. And I'd have to vote for Obama. Yeah, there you go. There you go. You got no choice. Okay, let me ask you this. Conoco Phillips and, and Phillips 66 are, are both still important parts of the, of the fabric of this community. Uh, how, with the, with the corporate changes they, that they've had over the last 15 years, how do you see those things impacting Bartlesville? Bobby, we all talk about that a lot. You know, we talked about the good old days, yeah. living out in Bellmead Edition and right. all of that. And Frank Phillips giving every kid in Barnesville a silver dollar at Christmas time. All of those great things. It was a different time. And then, and then you go from there and you just go a few years and, and Boots Adams, you know, they said he was the CEO. You and I both know he was the dictator of, of Phillips. Sure. He did what he wanted and that was that. He had Mayor Hensley. Uh, they were best buds. So if they wanted to do something in Barsville, they did it. Fortunately, for the most part, they were good things. But, but it was a different time. In my mind, I've never heard anybody say this, but in my mind, the thing that really changed things from a corporate standpoint was a stockholders meeting here in Bartlesville. It's been quite a while ago. And of course, they'd bring everybody in and the guys would get up there and get, give their spiel and everybody would applaud and everybody would leave happy, you know. And one year... Some guy stands up. I know there were other questions. The one I remember, he asked, I think it was Bill Martin, I'm not sure, but he asked, how many planes does Phillips have? And nobody up there knew the answer to that question. And then he started asking other questions, and nobody knew. And they just have to keep saying, not sure of that. We'll find out, we'll get back with you. Not sure of that. All at once, the stockholders were starting to take ownership. Yeah. It wasn't just Phillips. We saw it all across the board. I think, in my mind, things are different. But we're still very, very fortunate that we've got those two companies still with a major presence in town. I, I don't know how long they'll be here. I hope it's another 100 years. Nobody knows. But I believe there are people that's working to find out what's good for Bartlesville wouldn't surprise me to see them bring in at some point a branch or something that brings in a number of jobs. But, but the things we have here in Bartlesville, so much of it can be attributed to Phillips 66 and, and then ConocoPhillips and now uh, 
P66 right. and ConocoPhillips. Yeah, and so, don't you think that, um, you know, it was something that we worried about for 50 years. Right. You know, what, what in the world's going to happen what if they ever do? move corporate? Right. And yet it almost seems like it's, it stirred an entrepreneurial spirit within the community that, sure, we, we wish we had corporate company back here in Bartlesville, yeah. but we built, we grew, we brought in more companies. We, you know, they brought in a lot of young people, which helped our schools, which helped our churches. Yeah. And, and so we're a different community than we were 40 years ago, yeah. but not necessarily all of it's bad. No, I don't think it's all bad. You know, there's some of the old timers that, that really get upset and everything. And I, I can understand where they're coming from to a certain extent. But I think you need to look at the positive. We're still good. There's still good people up there. You know the heads of the two companies. They're, they're good people. The right. people that are here in Barbersville, they seem to care about Barbersville and the people and the employees and all. And everybody has downsized. That, that's not unique to Phillips or Conoco Phillips. Yeah, Everybody is downsized. I was just going to say the same thing. That you know, We all would love to hang on to 50 years ago. Yeah. The fact of the matter is things change. Yeah and evolve and move and you either move with them or, or you turn to dust and drop yeah. away. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. A real, real quick, interesting story that I ran into firsthand. A number of years ago, uh, there was a, a young guy here that was in charge of uh, recruits and an intern program. And so Phillips brought in 24 interns and 12 of them went to Houston and 12 of them stayed in Bartlesville. The night the people found out where they were going, the people, the 12 staying here in Bartlesville, couldn't believe their misfortune. Here these guys were going to Houston, Texas. And going to the big city. This, yeah, and we're stuck here in Bartlesville. Within three weeks, the, the 12 in Houston was wanting to know if they could come up here. This guy that was kind of overseeing them, not, not during their work, but we were trying to set up programs to get them involved. Mm -hmm. After work, they had Frisbee, disc golf. There you go. They had other events. That they just had something going all the time. The people, the 12 in Houston, they got off work and they scattered. There was no way for them to get back together because they were strung all over. I think we see that in the employees today. I don't think employees today dread being transferred back to Bartlesville. Uh, you and I are prejudiced, but Bartlesville's still a darn good place to live. Absolutely. And to raise a family. Absolutely. And you talk about the young people. You see it on the street. Back when I left here in, in 67 and even when I came back in, 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 even in 85 when I came back, there weren't very many young people in Bartlesville. Right. They just weren't. Yeah, and now you know, there are. I think we became so reliant on the company to take care of things, yeah. fix this, do this, build this, yeah. and and you know, look at our downtown today compared to thirty no years comparison. ago. It's Restaurants and yeah. all that. I mean, so dreading that worst thing that could ever happen, and it finally happened, and in a lot of ways, good things really came out yeah. of it. it Wasn't so, all bad, that's no. for sure. Okay, on a different note, you have done so much for this community as a volunteer, and I'm going to leave things out because your, your list is too long, but from the Bartlesville Sports Commission to Samaritan Counseling to the Boy Scouts to the Bartlesville Community Foundation, why is volunteering so important to Bob Pomeroy? Bobby, I, you know, I said earlier about my story of, of rags to mediocre, you know, uh, uh, our family. I, I never went to bed thinking, gosh, we're poor, but we didn't have very much, okay? And so I read a book, and maybe 20 years, 10 years before I retired. I was reading the book by Lee Iacocca, the name of it, Iacocca. Mm -hmm. And Lee Iacocca, gosh, he had started Mustang and got Ford going with Mustang. That was his baby. Right. And then he'd gone to Chrysler and revitalized that company. He was, he was raising money to redo the Statue of Liberty. He was in charge of all of that. Those are some of the things that I remember from that book. I don't remember a whole lot about it. But the thing that really took, came away from that is Lee Iacocca said life is in three stages. 
There's the learning stage, and that's when you're going to school and, and learning things that you need to know. There's the earning stage. That's when you work and, and make your money, whether it's wealth or whether it's paycheck to make money. You, you learn, then you earn. And then the third stage in life is your return. And I don't know why, because I've never been that involved in nonprofits when I lived in California and all those places. I'd never been that involved, but that just really struck me. And I realized all at once, that's something I can do. You, you don't have to be a multimillionaire like Lee Iacocca to, to give back to your community. And, and I do love Barbersville. I truly, truly love Barbersville. When I came back in 85, Ray Steiner uh, asked me if I would help him with the Boy Scout golf tournament. Well, Ray Steiner was the region manager. He didn't say no to Ray Steiner. And so I said, yeah. So I helped him one year and he turned it over to me the next year. And I was chairman of that golf tournament for, I don't know, maybe 20 years. As you know, because you live out there, there's a golf tournament every Friday mm -hmm. at Adams. But at that time, there weren't that many. It was kind of new and original. And we really did good. We raised what then was good money, nothing compared to United Way today, but really good money for the Cherokee Area Council. So I don't want to say I got recognition for that, but what I got was a great sense of contribution. So then when I retired, uh, some people knew I'd done that. Some people knew what my job had been of working in sports. And uh, I, I think they thought I had more to do with running big eight and big 12 basketball tournaments because I didn't have anything to do other than I was there entertaining customers. but. They knew that was my background. So Gene Batchelder and Chris Batchelder and Tim Bart had the idea of starting a Barsville uh, Sports Commission. I remember the first meeting was at the lodge at Willarock. Uh, That's it. Right, I had just started out there That's it. at that time. That's I exactly that. right. Yeah. So they invited me and Charlie to sit in. And so we just talked about things. I knew kind of how it worked. Like, although the Big Eight was always in Kansas City, the Kansas City Sports Commission is who put on the tournament. And in Oklahoma City, it wasn't the Oklahoma City Sports Commission, it was the Oklahoma City All Sports or something like that. But same function. And, and so that's how you got people to come to town. You had, in most cases, a sports commission, and they go out, and maybe it's a little rodeo, maybe it's a softball tournament, maybe it's a soccer. That's how you brought things in. Bigger towns went after conference tournaments and bigger items. Bigger towns would might go after NASCAR, things like that. Sure. So I had a I had an idea of how those things work. So they asked me to be on the first board once we got all the board put together, and we immediately had the uh, had the uh, uh, request for consideration from the Lone Star Basketball Tournament. We sat around and we thought, uh, Gene and Chris and Tim and I said, you know, my comment was, we can't get this. We're way way north geographically. Tahlequah was the closest school, Edmond, then everything else was in Texas and New Mexico. Mm -hmm. I said, what a great exercise. We, we hadn't even written our mission statement yet. And so I said, but what a great time to practice bidding. Jim Fram was head of the chamber and all. He, he lent his help to it, he was on the board. And so we put together a proposal, it's a beautiful proposal. Full color and all of this. So we sent it down to, uh, the commissioner of the Lone Star, who turned out he was a, he was a nephew of a good friend of mine. Huh. And my friend had told uh, him, said, you ought to get Barlesville involved. Pomeroy's up there. He knows all about this stuff. So once again, I, I was outclassed. So anyway, they, as a courtesy, they bring their selection team up. We took them out to Woolrock to the lodge and fed them dinner, showed them our basically brand new basketball gym at the time, showed them all around town. We were short on hotels, wasn't any question about that. Lo and behold, we got the bid. I mean, we were just barely in business and we got a bid for 16 teams. We pulled it off, it was a good tournament. They came back for three more years and then Tahlequah and Edmund dropped out of the Lone Star. So then, that one anyway, that's coming to Barbersville when they didn't have any Oklahoma schools in it. But we never missed a year because they formed a new conference that I you picked that, up that we found out about. Mm -hmm. I brought that guy over. I, he has said in public many times, he said, I don't even know how Pomeroy found my phone number. It wasn't listed or anything. And, and so I got him up here and got him to 
come in. He spent the night here at the house. I showed him programs from the Lone Star tournaments. Uh, he was from West Virginia. I had just been to, uh, what's the big golf tournament there? In West Virginia. At the Greenbrier? Greenbrier. I had just been to the Greenbrier and it made a hole in one. So they'd give me a nice book with a deal. This guy lived close to that. I said, oh, hey, Will. Here, I was at the Greenbrier and I showed him that book. He was just blown away. So we got them and we had them for eight or nine years. We gave up on them before they gave up mm -hmm. on us. And there's a little bit, Bobby, you and I have talked about volunteerism. Uh, the first couple of years that we did that tournament, we had 300 volunteers the weekend of the tournament or the, the five days of the tournament. Unreal. We had a whole bunch leading up to that, but it was just committee heads and, right. and that. That was too many. We, we, we had help on top of help. So we pared it down. But after 12 years of doing that tournament, we still basically had the same people mm -hmm. that had started with us. And so you and I have talked about how to get young people involved in volunteering and, and all of that. And, and I've thought a lot about that as I've got out of those sort of things. And uh, I, I think they'll come around. I see signs, you know. Uh, Jordan and Drew, I think, are good examples. They're involved in the community. They're mm -hmm. involved in nonprofits. They care about what's going on. They've got a lot of friends that they go to these events with. I think these young people are going to come around. They're See, not the biggest bidders on auction items. That'll come. Shoot, I, I didn't agree. bid on auction items when I was 35, no, years old. No, I didn't volunteer when I was yeah. 30 and 35. No, right. You know, you're raising that. a family. You're yeah. trying to make a career. I yeah. mean, you're being tugged in 15 different directions. Yeah. I agree 100% with you. I, I think when, when I look around this community, I'm encouraged yeah. by the young people that are stepping up. And, and you know, the term young people is kind of relative at my age, but I mean, that 50 year old just seems like a kid. But, I know it. Yeah. I know but, something. but I mean, I'm like you, I'm, I'm encouraged by it. Question for you. You've received a lot of community honors and a lot of recognition here in Bartlesville. Um, now I'm not throwing dirt on your grave yet, so don't, do. don't get upset, but what would you like to best be remembered for and by? Well, Bobby, um, you know, some of the things, some of the honors, I guess, that, that I've got, you know, Citizen of the Year by the Examiner Enterprise, that just blew me away, absolutely blew me away. Uh, Chamber of Commerce uh, gave me an award for, it was something like Citizen of the Year one year, and, and I had no idea. Uh, you got an award that same night, and I'm sitting down there in the audience, and Ever Piper came up and started his speech, and and one of the first things he talked about was the bridge on Pathfinder, and all at once it dawned on me that he was talking about me. My gosh, and, I'm going to get this. Yeah, yeah. And and, and I I wrote down. I sat there at, at the table with tears running out of my eyes. There's there's been other awards. At no time did I go into any endeavor, volunteerism or anything, thinking, "Well, I'll get an award for this." Never once. You, you've received more than your fair share of awards. You, you, you've been in the same shoes. And I, I, I know you feel the same way. Yeah. You don't do those things for the recognition or hoping you get an award. You do them because you want to do them. And then good things seem to happen. And so I think what I talk to my boys about, and, and I guess what I'd like to be remembered is, is that uh, I, I, I cared about my hometown. I, I care about our youth. Most of the things that I've been involved with involve our youth at some level, whether it's the whether it's the Y or the basketball tournament or the Boy Scouts or whatever it is. I think it's important that we take care of our youth. We've got so many single-parent families now. We've got so many young men, women too, but young men without a male role model to follow. And when you're doing that, then it's just one generation after the other mm -hmm. that, that is so hard for them to succeed without that. And so I think that's critical, not just our town or state or whole country, that we do something about that. And so I feel good about my work with the youth. And uh, I encourage my boys, who are young men now, get involved. And, and wherever you are, 
Scotty's in Fort Worth, Mikey's in Marlboro. Get involved with the youth. They're the ones that need us the most. Yeah, amen. And so if, if I would be remembered as somebody that, that cared about my community, cared about my state, um, and, and cared about my friends, I am absolutely blessed with friends and, and good friends. They're, they're people that I know I can count on, and I hope they know they can count on me, and that is critically important to me. I don't take friendship lightly. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's kind of it. That's a lot of wealth right there. Okay, last question, and I'll get you out of here. Not including me, who's the most important and impressive person you've had the chance to meet in your lifetime? I, I, I think the world of, I hate, I'll leave someone. I think the world of Steve Owens. Steve Owens is an interesting man. He really, really is. He's a good man and, and very, very interesting man. Dick Vitale is not anything like his TV persona. Dick Vitale's an interesting man to sit and talk to. Joe Castiglione is the best athletic director in the United States. Bar none. I mean, he's just the best that's out there. So, you know, Bobby, I tend to think, whenever you ask me that question, I, I tend to think of famous people that I've come in contact with, and that's probably not fair. I, I, I think that, I think my answer is my mother. Uh, that's she, good. She, she did things that, that were unbelievable. Our family was in turmoil at one time, and would never have survived if it hadn't been for my mother. Huh. And, and I think my mom made me who I am. Uh, she, she was terrific. I, I think that's, it was her. That's perfect. That's perfect answer. Bob, this has been great. Uh, one of the nice enjoyments of these kind of conversations is me hearing new things about people that I have known for a long time. You know, why you've held out on some of these stories over the years with me is beyond me. But uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to visit. Thanks, Bobby. I've enjoyed it. I'm, I'm honored that you would uh, take the time to put me on this Well, thing. absolutely. For my friend Bob Pomeroy, this is Bob Frazier, Cutting the Cards. Thank you for joining me today. I'm Bob Frazier, and remember, trust everyone. Be sure you cut the cards.